Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. We want everybody to be able to follow along as we look at the passage. The guys have some Bibles. So as they make their way back, get their attention if you'd like a copy of the Scriptures. And that is yours to keep. We want everybody to own a Bible, not only today, but every day. And those Bibles are marked at the passage we'll be considering in Ephesians chapter 6. As we continue our series through the book of Ephesians, the title of the entire series is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. We are in the last chapter, and over the next several weeks, we'll conclude this marvelous book together. Much of human behavior can be explained as an attempt to compensate for lack but that which we truly crave. We do much of what we do because we don't have what we want. We crave acceptance, but we don't have it, so we'll go along with the crowd in order to get it. We crave recognition, but we don't have it, so we talk loud and often about ourselves and our achievements, even if we have to embellish them or make them up. We long for love to such an extent that we're willing to settle for lust. What we want explains why we think the way we think, why we talk the way we talk, and why we act the way we act. Behind every thought and word and deed is a desire. And this can have physical effects on us. Consider depression. Before I get to the clinical stage, most often I've lost at the meditation stage. That is, I've I've brooded and I've fretted and I've worried. That's all under the category of negative meditation. And I've been consumed about someone or someones that I want to love me and accept me and recognize me. Or I've brooded and I've fretted and I've worried about something or things that I believe I must have, but I don't have. And the Bible contains this kind of self-talk where an individual is thinking about himself and his his circumstances and whether or not God cares. And he finally asks himself, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so so disturbed within me? How we think about ourselves and about others and our circumstances can cause us to spiral downward, as it did the psalmist in Psalm 42. And this lack and desire cycle can have physical effects on us, as I've said. I just this past week read an article in the New York Times. And it was reporting on a study of the phenomenon of young girls physically maturing much earlier than in the past. All the research says it's actually something that's happening, and they're trying to figure out why. They've identified a number of possible causes, including, as you might suspect, the stuff we eat. But they also said this, quote, family stress can disrupt normal maturation. Girls who from an early age grow up in homes without their biological fathers are twice as likely to go into early maturation as girls who grow up with both parents. 
Some studies show that the presence of a stepfather in the house also correlates with early maturation. And it goes on to say these girls are more susceptible to depression and other harmful behaviors in the future. You see, the lack of, or even perceived lack of, acceptance and love and security has not only psychological effects, but physiological effects. Now, by the way, for those of us in the church, the fact that people don't think right, and therefore suffer the consequences of that ill-informed thinking, non-gospel thinking, actually offers great opportunity for those who preach the gospel and can point people to the solution to right thinking about themselves and about God and about their circumstances. People who are in a position to be a family to the orphan and the widow, as Scripture says. The key to breaking the lack, desire, downward spiral is to recognize this, friends, that in the gospel that is centered on Jesus, I really need nothing else. Famously, the 23rd Psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And remember, I mentioned the psalmist a bit ago in Psalm 42, talking to himself. Well, this is the rest of that internal conversation. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then he says, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. How we think has profound effects on our well-being. Our ideas about ourselves and others and God have significant consequences. And the answer is not to simply think positive thoughts that have no basis in reality. And it's not to give others simple platitudes. You know, it's going to be all right. Rather, we have to separate what is true from what is false and combat false teaching with truth. The truth of the gospel in particular and the truth of the word of God as a whole. We need our Father's help, do we not? To think his thoughts after him so that it affects our attitudes and our words and our behavior. Let's ask our God to help us. Father, we stand before you as people in great need. But we thank you that our need is met completely in Jesus. And as we come to break the word, the bread of the word of life, our need is met by him and through him. And so we thank you in advance for healing our broken hearts and forgiving our sin and helping us to leave this place better equipped to bring you glory and to live for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians 6, and going back to verse 14, we're told to stand firm. And in recent weeks, we've seen that that stability in the midst of spiritual battle requires, the passage tells us, the belt of truth and also the breastplate of righteousness. Today, verse 15 says this, Stand firm with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
And when you read of readiness that comes from the gospel, you may think it's referring to our eagerness to share the gospel. And the Bible does indeed talk about the beautiful feet of those who bring good news. And in fact, the mission given to us is to go and to make disciples of all nations. But in verse 15 of Ephesians 6, this readiness is not speaking about going anywhere. It's talking about standing somewhere and doing so very firmly, ready for battle. This readiness is really steadiness. It's referring to the leather half boot that a Roman soldier would wear. It was laced tightly. And importantly, it had nails that from the inside went through the bottom to create spikes. Spikes to hold him in place as he engaged in hand-to-hand combat. Any form of struggle requires leverage, stability. It's true in military battle. It's true in athletic competition. And so it's important for football players to have spikes to stand their ground against the opponent so they don't slip as they run, rush, push, or are rushed and pushed. And even if you're not in the military or you're not an athlete, we all understand this, need to plant our feet because we speak of things like digging in our heels at times. So we're being told that this piece of armor is something that will hold us steady in the spiritual battle in which we're engaged. The spiritual armor that adorns our feet is called, in verse 15, the gospel of peace. And I say in the outline that was inserted in your program, I encourage you to take a look at that, that if we're going to be firm in our place in God's plan, then we must, first of all, have this peace. Let's be reminded of what this gospel of peace is and then how it serves as the source of peace. The gospel, you all know, means good news. It's good news when compared to the bad news. The bad news is we are estranged from God. None of us came into this world with a relationship with God. Do you all understand that, dear friends? We all think that we come into this world as children of God. But the Bible tells us that we are apart from God from the very first moment. We are not God's children by natural birth, but we become God's children through spiritual birth, through the new birth. None of us came into this world with a relationship with God. None of us are God's children by natural birth. And the bad news gets worse when we realize this, that not only did it start that way, but we had no way to be reconciled to God. Sin has a debilitating effect, such that we have no ability to meet God's standard of right. And it also has a dulling effect, such that we don't even want God as He is. Now, we might pursue a God made in our image, even through religion, but we don't want God as He is, the Bible teaches very clearly, because sin has this dulling effect. Sin had made us God's enemies, the Bible says. And our separation from God was real and total, and it would last forever unless God intervenes. That's the bad news. The good news is that God has done what we could not. 
God the Father sent God the Son, we're told in chapter 1 of Ephesians, to do what we could not do for ourselves. God the Son, Jesus Christ, lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death that we deserved. He offers what he did to you and to me for no cost to us. No cost to us, but infinite cost to him. If I believe that I am a sinner as God describes me, and if I believe I cannot deliver, save, rescue myself, and I believe Jesus is my God and my Savior, then what I have to do is acknowledge that to him and ask him to deliver me from the penalty I deserve and ask him to begin remaking me into what I was designed to be. And the good news is further this. If you believe and you ask, he will save. Thanks be to God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And at the end of our time together, we're going to pray, and I'm going to encourage you at the end of that time to thank God if you have come to him through the new birth that's offered through the gospel, or if you have never done so, to use that time to be saved at no cost. Or do it now. You coming to God through the gospel of Jesus is more important than the rest of what I'm going to say, actually. So you can pray from your heart to God, now or at the end. So we must be at peace. And we must, I say in your outline, be at peace with God. We must be at peace with God because the Bible says what I've mentioned. That we were, prior to coming to Christ, here's what the Bible says, God's enemies. But when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And the Bible goes on to say, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I said earlier that what we believe has profound consequences. Some look at this idea that we now have peace with God because God the Son has come and died on our behalf. They look at that and they believe that it's okay to be angry with God, but now we'll cut God some slack because he's done this in Jesus. Do you know it's not okay to be angry with God? I don't care what your counselor told you. The Bible does not teach it's okay to be angry with God. Our all-knowing and all-loving God knows what he's doing. And And so it is not the case that You know, I entered a world that is really screwed up and I'm in lousy circumstances and have been for most of my life and ultimately this is your fault, God, and I am rightly angry with you, but we can be reconciled. No longer enemies because you've come and done this on my behalf. When we're angry at our circumstances, ultimately we are angry at the God of those circumstances. Hear this, friends. And when we believe we deserve better, This is the mindset then that we will have. God needs to do something to get back into my good graces. And it affects how we see the cross and the peace that God offers. We think it's something like God trying to get it right this time. 
We look at this peace that we can have as if God did something good for me, so I'm no longer hostile to him. He's back in my good graces because he came to earth and he died for me. No, friends. He died not so he could be in our good graces, but so that we could be in his. And the cross shows that our sin is worse than we ever imagined. But it also shows that God's love is greater than we could have ever hoped. And it shows that God's anger at our sin is completely justified. And it shows that our anger at God, at this loving God, has no justification. As bad as it may be for you, for me, hear this. It is not nearly as bad as it could be. And if what the Bible describes us as, God's enemies, rebelling against him, even in respectable sorts of ways from a societal standpoint. If that description is true, then it's not only not nearly as bad as it could be, it's not as bad as it should be. And so when we see the cross, we see the heart of this loving God. And you see your circumstance that's made you angry with God. And perhaps it's the very means that God is using to bring you to himself. And so to stand your ground and to find our place in God's plan, we must be at peace with God. And if that peace does not come through the gospel, we will do what I said in the introduction. We'll compensate for the void with God substitutes. Rivals for the gospel. What are these rivals to the good news that God has done? Well, these rivals are... I have to do. Rivals of the good news are, it's on me. I, I have to work for it. And by the way, that's most religion, right? So most religion is really giving you a rival to the gospel of peace. Because it's telling you you've got to work for God's favor. A rival to the gospel of peace will be our own righteousness. We think we're better than we are. Listen, to get on that good works treadmill for a moment and to think you can log enough miles to get to where God is, you have to be deluded, as most of us are prior to coming to Christ, about our own ability, our own righteousness. And if you don't have the gospel of peace to keep you stable and steady, if you pursue works, if you pursue religion, if you have confidence in your own righteousness, you will always be off balance, always unsteady. Now think about it. Am I right? Think about it. Can you ever get on solid ground that way? Will you ever achieve that way? There's always more to do. Always stuff you haven't done. And that is why the gospel of peace is what gives us this stability. Jesus has taken the blows and he's defeated the enemy. And in the gospel, the good news, he has made you a son and a daughter and no longer an enemy. We must be at peace with God and we must live at peace, I say in your outline, with others. Now, this follows from the fact that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, one of the things that we are told 
to do in order to live out the new life that we've been given as described in chapters 1 through 3 is to live unified with one another. So chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 tell us of this absolute necessity to be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ if we are going to reflect the character of God who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit and perfectly unified. Well, if this unity is what displays the character of God, does it not follow that one of the schemes of the wicked one will be to disrupt that unity, to disrupt the peace that we are to have with one another? One of Satan's schemes is to have you fight the wrong battle because you're fighting against the wrong person. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I made the point that the passage tells us, beginning in verse 10 and in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so many of us here have been busy fighting that battle. When the real battle is taking place someplace else, it's taking place in your heart. It's taking place as someone and something else captures your heart other than Christ. To the extent you're engaged in a flesh and blood battle, you're not engaged in the real battle. And when you're at war with others, fighting the wrong battle, struggling against flesh and blood, and you're not standing to fight the real battle, then you are truly unsteady. You know, if as a Christian, you say, my battle is not against flesh and blood. You can, in your relationships, even difficult relationships with other people, display a completely different set of values. Now I want to be like Jesus in this difficult relationship. More than I want to win. More than I want to be right. More than I want to be known as being right more than I want material stuff that somebody else has or I think I should have had, and therefore I have a low-level conflict with them. More than, I want to be like Christ and reflect His character more than I want to take satisfaction in the conflict itself. There are, let's be honest, some of us like the fight. And we enjoy the battle and the back and forth. And who's going to do the one-upmanship today? The Bible tells us in chapter 4 and verse 32 of this book, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. We have to be at peace with God, at peace with others, if we are going to be steady in this battle. And this is not in your outline, but if we do that, we will have the peace of God. If we rely on the gospel, as our sufficiency, and not all the other junk that Satan uses to deflect our attention from the real battle, we will experience subjectively, personally, individually, the peace of God. The Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, 
with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I just want you to know, we're going to read on in just a moment, another portion of that passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, how can I rejoice in the Lord always if I have got this craving in my heart for someone or something that has not been filled? The only way you can be joyful, rejoice in all circumstances like the guy who wrote this did while he was under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. He says, rejoice always. The only way you can do that is if you are fully satisfied in Jesus. Then you can rejoice all the time. Come what may. You notice the next line? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. What's the connection with that? Listen, when I'm hacked off about my circumstances, other people tend to know about it. But when I am at delighting in the God who is at work in my life, whatever the circumstances, now I can be gentle and that will be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. And what's the result of this? The peace of God, which doesn't come naturally. It transcends all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Every moment of every day down to your last breath. You all remember our dear brother Dan Elwert, who the Lord determined to take home a few years ago? Those of you who knew Dan, do you remember how Dan died? Peacefully, over months, because he had the peace of God that transcends all understanding. We must have peace if we are going to fight this battle. And it comes through the gospel of Jesus. Secondly, in your outline, we must have faith. Here's what verse 16 says. Verse 16 tells us, and add to this the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the wicked one. Now, the reason I say we must have faith is because it says you take up this shield, this shield of faith, and in your outline, you'll notice in point A, I say you have to believe. And in point B, you, you have to believe. And I remind you of the relationship between faith and belief. They're the same word in your New Testament. So when it says take up the shield of faith, it's saying take up the shield of belief. Now let me explain this armor like I did the boots and what it represents. The shield that's being described is not the handheld job that you see a gladiator with, and he's holding it in one hand, he's got a sword in the other hand, and he's uh, doing hand-to-hand -hand combat that way. But rather, this is a word that describes a large shield, about four feet by two and a half, that would be on the outer perimeter of a Roman uh, group of soldiers that are advancing toward the enemy. And they would have these shields on the outside to protect the entire group as they advanced the enemy would shoot arrows as they did that. And those arrows were metal-tipped arrows. And under the metal tip, there would be tar that was filled with oil and thus was easy to ignite. And just before it was shot at the advancing enemy, it would be lighted. 
and then shot at them. Now, these shields would protect the group. The shields were made of leather and they would be doused with water in order to cool the oncoming arrows and extinguish them when they hit. The shield represents then faith, says Paul who wrote this, or belief. Now the King James Version says, above all, take the shield of faith. And some have concluded that means that faith is the most important. And that this passage is saying that faith is the most important. It is not. I said that a couple of weeks ago. Someone pointed out to me, I actually can't remember who, but one of our ladies pointed out to me that Beth Moore says that this really is the most important. Well, who am I to argue with Beth Moore? But it really doesn't say above all. It says add to this. In addition now to the armor you've already taken, now take up this piece of armor as well. Now, some try to say this is the most important because it's going to protect you from these arrows. The truth of the matter is they can shoot arrows over the group and they can land on your head. So you've got to have a helmet, and the Bible will talk about the helmet a little bit later as, as well. Faith, belief, requires an object. And the object of belief that is our shield of faith is Christ. And we know Christ by the truth regarding himself in his word. Here's what the Bible says. Let the word, it's called the word of Christ. Which in turn now explains what the arrows are. If what we are to believe is the truth about Christ given in his word, then the arrows are Satan's lies. The Bible says Satan is the father of lies. And falsehood, often disguised as truth, is one of his most effective arrows. And that's why I say in your outline, we must believe the truth. The truth given in Christ's word about ourselves, about him, about our circumstances. Many of you had the privilege to meet my dear mom, who the Lord called home to be with him April 28 of last year. You know how I feel about her, I won't go on. I look forward to seeing her again someday. My dear mom had many difficulties in her circumstances. One of those difficulties was exacerbated, made all the more difficult, because she struggled with believing the lies that were hurled at her. She had family members who would insult her and would say very hurtful things to her. I remember so many times my dear mom coming to me in tears and saying, is it like that? Am I like that? Did I do that? Did you see what was happening in all of that? She was believing the lies of the enemy. A flaming arrow at her heart. And I would do my very best to remind her of the truth that is in Jesus. And the question for you and for me, friends, is what do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about our circumstances? What do we believe about God? We must believe the truth that he has given. And not just the truth in general, but I say in your outline. We must believe the whole truth. And here's why I say the whole truth. Because verse 16 says, 
that what is being shot at us is not one arrow. (laughs) You see, the enemy has a bunch of these. And he shoots them continually, and they are of different varieties. And so, to put it another way, he tells different kinds of lies. And because he tells different kinds of lies, you have to believe the whole truth to counteract the various lies. These arrows come from outside of you and outside of me. But they're effective only because what's inside of you and inside of me. Did you hear that? They come from outside, but they're only effective because of what's inside, what I have chosen to believe. I can't control what's shot at me. I can control what I choose to believe. One day we are going to be freed from the arrows, from the very presence of sin and the battle. For now we look to His Word regarding the truth about us and His work within us. If we buy the lie that I deserve better, that I am better, or if we buy the lie that I don't deserve heaven, now there's truth to that, but in Jesus I have been qualified for heaven because of him. And so when Satan tempts me to despair (laughs) and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We're going to sing that together at the end of our time. Commentator Kent Hughes describes how this process works. We rationalize that if God didn't want me to have this, then why did he make me with such a desire for this thing or this person or this pleasure? And then comes the Word of God that tells us not to covet your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Along comes the truth of the Word of God that tells us that it's God's will that we be set apart, that is sanctified, that we avoid sexual immorality. It tells us that God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, a different kind of life. The truth of the Word of God comes and tells us whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that. We find ourselves in adverse situations, illness, tragedy, perhaps even persecution. Satan fires arrows of doubt regarding whether God is really good. Do you believe in that moment that God is good? Do you believe the truth of the gospel? Do you believe God is even there? And the shield of faith, the shield of what we believe, cools those arrows as we believe God's word. When despite our difficult circumstances, it says, I know the plans, God says, that I have for you. Plans for your well-being and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. They're the arrows that bring delightful fire to the furnaces of our hearts. Our own pride, our own vanity, our own self-love. And in our narcissistic culture... We're encouraged to open ourselves to all of these deadly arrows. But then we trust the truth of God's word. We believe it rather than the culture. He gives grace. And the scripture says he opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. The truth says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
Now, friends, it, it is not then that none of the accusations that the enemy makes are true. Sometimes, even often, they are true. It is this, that even though they're true, they don't stick. And the reason they don't stick is because I have the shield of what I believe. And the shield of what I believe in the gospel and in the truth of Scripture as a whole protects me from the flaming arrows of the wicked one. Now, we're going to bow in prayer in just a moment. I said when we began that you must have peace with God and He has made it possible for you to have that. And until you have that, all this other stuff about the truth and the belief and all that ain't going to matter to you. And so we're going to bow in just a moment, ask God to help us take up this armor with our feet having the boot of the gospel and taking up the shield of faith and thanking him for the salvation, the deliverance he's given us in Jesus. But I encourage those of you who have never come to Jesus Christ to do that right now as we bow from your heart to God in your own words, acknowledge you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ died for your sin. Repent. It's a fancy word. It simply means, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life by acknowledging you're a sinner, that he paid the penalty for your sin. He's your Lord, and you ask him to forgive you and give him your life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this blessed time to sing praise to you, to give of what you have first given to us, to look into your word together. We thank you for the reminder from the pages of Holy Scripture of the battle that we are in, but the armor that you have given us that is fully sufficient. We thank you for the gospel that gives us peace with you, that gives us peace within ourselves, and can give us peace even in adverse circumstances with others. We thank you for the shield of faith. What you have told us in your word is true and right. And thus, if we believe it, we extinguish the flaming arrows of the wicked one. I pray that your word is an encouragement to your people today. And that we'll go better armed to serve you in the battle this week. I pray that any who came in here not knowing Jesus as Savior, apart from you, as all of us came into this world as, that they will experience the new birth right now, the miracle of the new birth, expressing their belief in who they are and in how they need the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.